All right, again, we're going to be in Exodus, the 19th chapter. We're going to read from verse 1 all the way into chapter 20, verse 2. Pastor Bruce, again, is starting a series on the Ten Commandments. His first message entitled, The Voice from the Mountain. Again, we'll be reading Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 20, verse 2. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you. And believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the, Lord, of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon, upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away! Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. You are awesome and you are holy. Lord, show us again the relevance of your word, Lord, of your truth. God, may our hearts be changed in order to obey you 
more. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we've already kind of stated here, we're uh, beginning a new series today, and uh, this will be a little longer series than usual, a series on the Ten Commandments for today. And uh, we're going to take about 11 weeks uh, to go through this series. So I, I hope you'll stay with us. I, I'm glad you're here today for this uh, introductory message, but I, I hope you'll make it a priority to, uh, to return and come back and, and hear out the whole series uh, on the Ten Commandments, it'll take us all the way into the summertime. And uh, it's interesting, uh, the, the Ten Commandments are recognized by Jews and Christians alike as one of the, the greatest moral code ever given to mankind. Uh, one survey shows that about 80% of Americans believe that the Ten Commandments are actually a valid guide to life. 80%, that's pretty good, isn't it? I was kind of shocked by that. Now, that old survey is, is, quite, is, is, is a little old, but nonetheless, that's still pretty good until you realize that another survey reveals that less than 30% of all people can name at least three Ten Commandments. Uh, so before we go any further, let's just throw out the question. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Right now, if you had to stand in and list off the Ten Commandments, how many do you think you could get? Now, obviously, they're on the posters here all around the auditorium. So you could stand and start right here with the first commandment. Well, you shall have no other gods before me. And you could go right down the row here and then start with commandment number six here, and you could list them off. And the reason we have these posters up here is because one of the goals is not just to go through the Ten Commandments and learn about them. It's actually to know the Ten Commandments, to learn them. And, and, and not just for our kids, although that's a great you know, challenge and goal for us as parents to teach the commandments to our children, but us as adults to even learn them and know what they are. And so right now, here we are in introduction. And if you had to list out as many commandments as you could, how many could you write? Would it be two, three? Could anybody do all ten? The goal is, by the end of the series, you could list all ten of the commandments. Uh, now, right now today, if you come up a little short, uh, you're not alone. A survey in 2007 found that more Americans are familiar with, uh, get this, ingredients of the Big Mac than the Ten Commandments. The survey by Kelton Research showed 80% could name the hamburger's primary ingredient, which is... To all beef patties. But less than 60% could recall the commandment, thou shalt not kill. The survey also found that just 45% could recall the commandment, honor your father and mother, while 76% remembered the Big Mac ingredient, lettuce, 75% sesame seed bun, 66% special sauce, 62% pickles, and 60% cheese. Now, you know, in all fairness, the Big Mac only has how many ingredients? Seven. While the Ten Commandments, well, there's ten of them. Even Americans who say they go to church once a week had difficulty naming all of the Ten Commandments. So it's not surprising that most people have not only forgotten the Ten Commandments, but we live in a day and age, we live in a culture that has not only forgotten the commandments, but we have forsaken the commandments. And that's just as true, not only for unbelievers, but also for many believers as well. 
In their recent book, The Day America Told the Truth, James Patterson and Peter Kim have this to say. Listen, and I quote, It's the wild, wild west all over again in America. But it's wilder and woolier this time. You are the law in this country. Who says so? You do, partner. There is absolutely no moral consensus at all. Everyone is making up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. Patterson and Kim then proceed to list what they call the Ten Real Commandments, the rules that, according to their surveys, people actually live by. Here's just a few of those rules. On the screen here, you'll notice, I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. We'll talk about the Sabbath. Is that still, you know, for today, for us? Uh, Another one, I will steal from those who don't really miss it. I will lie when it suits me, so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she will do the same to me. And so that's what they have found. Now these new commandments, the rules that people actually live by, are based on moral relativism. You say, what's that? I've heard that term before, moral relativism. That is just simply a belief that I'm free to make up my own rules in life based on my own personal preferences. Patterson and Kim's survey shows that the overwhelming majority of people, 93%, said that they and nobody else determine what is and what is not moral in their lives. In other words, the law is not something that comes from God. It's something we come up with on our own. And our laws usually conflict with God's laws. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, I think Ted Turner, that uh, TV mogul, cable TV mogul, he verbalized the attitude of most people several years ago when he declared the Ten Commandments are obsolete. That pretty much sums up, in our culture today, the attitude of most people. And again... It's even the attitude of most believers. The Ten Commandments are obsolete. So let me throw out a question. How do you, right now, this morning, in this this introductory message, how do you view the Ten Commandments? When you hear the Ten Commandments, when you heard we were going to do a series on the Ten Commandments, what was your thought process? What did you think about that? What is your view of the Ten Commandments? Do you view the Ten Commandments as obsolete laws from the past, or do you view the Ten Commandments as relevant laws even for today? It's easy to view the Ten Commandments as obsolete laws from the past instead of relevant laws for today. After all, the words commandment, the word laws, have a negative connotation with most people, right? We think of the Ten Commandments as just a bunch of outdated rules and regulations. We think of them as God's outdated list of do's and don'ts that limits my freedom in life. Reminds me of the story of the newspaper editor who told one of his reporters to rewrite the Ten Commandments. So after a few minutes, the reporter came back with one word scratched in huge letters on one piece of paper. Don't. And this view of the Ten Commandments plays right in to Satan's master plan. It's one he's had from the very beginning of time, all the way back to Adam and Eve, that God 
is this cosmic killjoy in the sky who doesn't want anyone to have fun in life. Now, listen, I stand here before you, and I can say with confidence, out of my own experience in life, that God is not a killjoy. But God is opposed to what kills joy. Let me say that again. God is not a killjoy. But he is opposed to what kills joy in my life and in your life. This is why God gave us the Ten Commandments in the first place. It's why they are still relevant for today. God knows best what we need to experience joy in our lives. God knows that life, if you want to summarize life in one brief statement, life is all about relationships. A relationship with God, a relationship with each other, and relationship with stuff. Get your relationships right, and life is a joy. Get your relationships wrong, and let me tell you, life stinks. And the Ten Commandments are God's blueprint for getting our relationships right and experiencing a life of joy. So while the Ten Commandments in general in our society have been forgotten and forsaken by most people, my goal here in this series, up front to let you know, is to challenge you to embrace the Ten Commandments, but also to embrace the God who wrote them. It's not just the idea to embrace a list of things, of do's and don'ts, if you will, but to understand the God who gave them to us and his heart for you and what his plans are for us is to embrace God first and foremost. And when we will embrace God, we will embrace his commandments. So what is the perspective that we should have of the Ten Commandments? That's what we want to find out today. Most people have a perspective. They have a view. They view the Ten Commandments as obsolete. I'm going to make a case for you today that the commandments are still relevant for today. It's not my opinion of that, but I want to make a case that it's relevant from God's Word. And so we need to understand the proper perspective, the biblical perspective of how the commandments were given to us by God. So notice, number one, the context. The place to begin, there's only one place to begin with the Ten Commandments, and that's with God himself. So what is God's perspective? Number one, we see the context of the Ten Commandments is God's faithful love for his people. That's the context. His faithful love for his people. Now look in your Bibles again and notice... How the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, the Ten Commandments is also known as the Decalogue. The Decalogue just means ten. ten deca means ten. Log is, is mean, meaning words. So Decalogue meaning ten words. That's where we get that from. And so notice how the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these things. Now, our tendency right off the bat here is to just rush right over that and get to the Ten Commandments. But that would be a crucial mistake because this tells us the voice from the mountain is God. God is speaking. He's on Mount Sinai. And he is speaking all these words. 
God is the divine author of the Ten Commandments. And so understand right from the beginning, this is not Israel's legislation for themselves. The Ten Commandments are not the product of human creativity. It's not the product of legislative assembly. There's no committee on Mount Sinai debating which laws to include, which laws to not include. There's, there's no hidden uh, meetings in the background where, where senators are making deals on which laws to include and not include. That's not the context here. There's no negotiation between God and even Moses, who's the representative of the Israelites. This is God and God alone speaking to his people, which means the Ten Commandments are not ten ideas that might work for you. They're not ten habits of highly successful people. Or as Ted Koppel reminded the students at Duke University's commencement ceremony several years ago, he says, what Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not God's ten suggestions. They are commandments. Now, to get God's perspective of these Ten Commandments, it helps us to remember the context or the setting in which they were given to us. God is speaking to the Israelites as they were gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, which is why we took time to read this, describes how God descended on the mountain in this great display of his power and glory and you read about these thunder and lightnings and fire and smoke that just consumed this mountain here. They had come, the Israelites, had come into the very presence of the awesome and almighty God. But let me tell you, folks, they're wondering, who is this God? Whose presence have we entered into? Who is this mighty God that is now speaking to us? Well, the God who reveals this law, the Ten Commandments, also reveals himself when he begins to speak in verse 2, and he says to them, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And And in revealing who he is, God is also reminding the Israelites of his faithful love for them. He's giving them the context now of why he's given the commandments to the Israelites. This verse is an awesome verse, verse 2. It tells us a lot about who God is. And at the same time that it tells us about who God is, he tells us the context in which he's given it. He tells us about his faithful, redeeming love for his people. Notice the three descriptions of God. Number one, we find that God here is the Lord. He's the Lord. You say, well, the Lord, I, I, man, who, I, I know the Lord. No, 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 step back here for a moment. The Lord here means Yahweh or Jehovah. This is God's covenant name. It's the name he wanted his people to know him by. In fact, this name was so holy, do you realize the Israelites, they wouldn't even speak this name audibly? This is the Lord, and it comes from the verb to be. It's the same name if you go back earlier in Exodus. Remember when Moses, God called Moses 
And he's in the desert, and he comes to the burning bush, and the voice from the burning bush is speaking to Moses. And the voice, Moses wants to know, who's speaking to me? And, of course, it's God, and God reveals himself to Moses, and what does he say? I am who I am. He simply says, I am. You say, what's that mean? The great I am. It highlights God's self-existence, his eternity, and his sovereignty. In other words, the Lord here, the great I am, is the God who tolerates no rival, as we will see next week. It is the God of all history. It's the God who made all that there is. And it is the God who has made an unbreakable covenant with his people. This is the Lord speaking. Jehovah, Yahweh, I am, that is speaking to the Israelites as he is speaking to us even now. The second description we find is God is your God. Whoa, step back from that. Your God. God says, I am the Lord, your God, indicating that this great I am, get a load of this, this is pretty radical, that he is a relational God who has a special relationship with his people. You know what this means? This means the Ten Commandments are addressed to a group of people who have come to enjoy a privileged relationship with the great I am. Let that blow your mind. Upon their arrival at Mount Sinai, God makes this incredible, radical commitment to his people. He promises them in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey, and it's interesting, he says, my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. How many of you have special treasures? That little knick-knack, that thing from your grandma. Darla has a little, I don't know, it's a little bowl. We got a new entertainment center, and so we've been putting little knick-knacks on it. I come home from playing basketball last Monday night, and I look up there, and all of a sudden there's this little bowl up on the very top, in center, no less. Front and center. I'm like, that's interesting. I've never seen that before in my life. Where'd that come from? Darla, what's that? That's expensive. (laughs) That's staying. We're not moving that. (laughs) That was my grandmother's. That's a special treasure to me. That's what God is saying to these people that they are to him. And then he says, listen, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. And so we find that this God, who is the Lord, the great I am, is also a relational God, a God of intimacy that he wants to have with his people. But number three, notice this, God is Redeemer. God is Redeemer. This personal relationship is also a saving relationship. For God goes on to say, I am the Lord your God. Notice now what he did. Who what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. This was a summary of everything that had happened so far in the book of Exodus. God 
is reminding the Israelites that he was not only their Lord, but he is also their Redeemer Lord. After the Exodus, Moses and the people, they sang about this. Man, they had a party, and they danced and sang about the Exodus. You can go to Exodus 15 and read about it. And in verse 13, it says, they sing to God, and it says, God, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And so God gives the people, now in Exodus 19, he gives them this beautiful word picture of his redeeming love. In verse 4 of Exodus 19, when he says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. In other words, he's reminded them, don't forget what you saw. You saw it with your very eyes. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that a beautiful word picture? What God does in his redeeming love for you and me. This is the context, folks, of the Ten Commandments. God's redeeming love for his people. The context is not God in the sky as a cosmic killjoy wanting to lay down his law so nobody has any fun and joy in life. Far from it. That's not the context. Uh, This is the context. God's faithful, redeeming love for his people. What God said to Israel is essentially the same thing he says to you and I. But I want to go back and I want to remind us that it's on the basis of his faithful love that he lays down this law. It's almost as if God is telling the people before he gives the commands, don't forget how much I've loved you in the past and heard your cries. Don't forget how I made a way for you when there was no way. Don't forget how I swooped down and bore you on eagles' wings to save you. Don't forget how much I've watched over your lives every day and concerned myself with your future. Now, this is the same thing that God says to you and I today. What God said to Israel, he says to every believer in Christ. He says, listen, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Egypt of your sin and out of the bondage to Satan. Do you realize we are heirs to the promises made to Abraham? into Israel at Mount Sinai. We are now those who have been redeemed, not by crossing the Red Sea, but by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through which we cross from death to life. Christ has accomplished his exodus on our behalf. We are now free from the bondage, not to the Egyptian taskmasters, but to our adversary, the devil. We are now God's own special people. We are a holy nation and a chosen generation who enjoy a privileged relationship with the same great I am who has redeemed us to himself. Folks, listen. We are in the same boat as the Israelites. And God gives us these commandments as well. Now, there's one other important fact to take note of when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And that is this. It's in your notes. Since God is the lawgiver, then the law 
That is the Ten Commandments, reveals and reflects God's divine character. Listen, the law always reveals the character of the lawgiver. And this is especially true at Mount Sinai, where every one of the Ten Commandments was stamped with the attributes of the Almighty God. So as we will see in the weeks to come, the Ten Commandments reveal, listen, they reveal God's sovereignty, they reveal His jealousy, His justice, His holiness, His honor, faithfulness, providence, truthfulness, and love. But out of all those attributes, all the, out of all those characteristics, love is the one attribute that is revealed by the Ten Commandments as a whole. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? Jesus summarized God's law. In other words, he took all these Ten Commandments and he summarized them down. In Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the Ten Commandments can be reduced to two commandments. Very simply. Love God, which which is what the first four commandments deal with, love your neighbor or love others, which is what the last six commandments deal with. Think about it. We love God by worshiping him and using his name properly. We love our parents by honoring them. We love our spouses by being faithful to them. We love our neighbors by protecting their lives, respecting their property, and telling them the truth. So the Ten Commandments are all about love. The context is love, which means we cannot separate God's law from God's love. And living the Ten Commandments, oh, get this, living them out, keeping them, frees us now. It doesn't enslave us. Keeping the commandments frees us to live out and to love God and to love people the way God intended us to. And you know what this will do? This will empower us to be salt and light in a culture that has forgotten and forsaken God's law. We are to model his character. You see, when we live out the commandments, we reflect now the character of God. We reflect him as redeemer, as a personal God, and as the great I am. Whoa, blow me down. Pretty awesome. That's the context. And I hope you're beginning to see that the context of the Ten Commandments is God's faithful love for you and me. Now let's answer the next question. What's the purpose, though, of the Ten Commandments? What's the purpose of God's law? Well, notice this, number two. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is for the benefit of God's people. It's for the benefit of God's people. Question. Question. How would you describe the Ten Commandments? Think about that in your mind. Right off the top of your head, how would you describe the Ten Commandments to somebody? Let's let's imagine, let's pretend that you're in a conversation, engaged with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend... And all of a sudden, the topic of the Ten Commandments comes up, and and you're talking about it, and they ask you, well, hey, you go to church. What do you think about the Ten Commandments? Are they obsolete, relevant? What would you say to them? And why? 
would you say what you do? Listen, there are numerous ways to answer this question, but perhaps the best way to summarize the purpose of the Ten Commandments is this way. Notice it in your notes. The Ten Commandments are simply God's blueprint for behavior and blessings. They are God's blueprint for behavior and blessings. Someone has said that since the beginning of time, mankind has passed. How many laws do you think mankind has passed since the beginning of time? How many laws? Over the course of history, someone has estimated over 35 million laws have been passed by mankind since the beginning of history. 35 million! Talk about obsolete. But in just 10 laws, 10 commandments, we have God's perfect blueprint for behavior and blessings in our life. You see, God, better than anyone else anywhere, understands how life works for his people. So God gave us the Ten Commandments, listen, not to hurt us, but to help us. Not to hamper us, but to release us. Not to punish us, but, but, but to protect us. The Ten Commandments contain the wisdom and priorities everyone needs for relational, spiritual, and societal blessings. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 5.33. Moses reminds the people now, after already receiving the Ten Commandments, he says, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And then Moses reminded the people in Deuteronomy 10, verse 13, that God gave his commandments for their very own good. In other words, God gave the commandments for our benefit. Bill Hybels, who's a pastor up in uh, the Chicagoland area, writes in his book, Laws of the Heart. He says, the Lord tells us specifically that his commands are never burdensome. Now, by this, he doesn't necessarily mean they're easy to keep. Rather, he's telling us that they're never foolish. They are never unnecessary or purely arbitrary. He doesn't force us to observe meaningless formalities, nor does he impose rules that have no value. On the contrary, every guideline, every law, every imperative in the Bible was crafted in infinite wisdom. They were given not only to honor God, but to benefit us as well. Now, at this point, we need to stop for a moment, and we need to make a distinction between three types of law in the Old Testament. And so this is just a brief little history lesson here. So far, we've been focusing on what is called or known as the moral law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. This is God's standard for our relationship with God and others. But there was another law the Israelites had, and it was known as the ceremonial law, which regulated Israel's worship life. And the ceremonial law consisted of various regulations for how to celebrate various religious festivals and worshiping in the temple, had regulations for offering sacrifices and, and whatnot. And then you have a third law, which is known as the civil law, that governed Israel as a nation under God. And it included guidelines for Israel on how to relate to one another, but also how to relate to foreign nations, such as when they enter into war and what 
stuff like that. The ceremonial law is no longer in effect today because all its regulations about worship and sacrifice is pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And because Christ's sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins, no further sacrifice is needed. Therefore, we don't have a need for ceremonial laws today. The civil law has also expired, but for a slightly different reason. The church, which is what we are part of as believers in Christ, is not a state. We do have a king, don't we? And his name is Jesus, but his kingdom is spiritual in nature. But God's moral law, on the other hand, is still beneficial for our lives today. Now, with that understanding of the three different laws, the Ten Commandments are the moral law. The moral law is expressed in the Ten Commandments. In fact, Paul makes a very interesting statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it wisely. So, I want us to consider three ways to use God's moral law as a benefit to our lives, even for today. You see this, notice number one, the law is a map. It's a map. That is, it guides our behavior or our conduct in life. You see, the Ten Commandments teach God's redeemed people how to live for God's glory. Do you realize the theme of Exodus, the book of Exodus, is that God's people are saved for God's glory. And now that we have received God's grace in the gospel, what comes next? Are we then free to live as we please? I mean, can we be saved and still live a sinful life with no remorse, no confession of sin? Of course not. Listen, what we are free to do is live in a way that pleases God. Which means living according to God's standard expressed in the Ten Commandments. Listen to what Thomas Watson, who was a long, long ago Puritan, wrote many years ago, but is still true today. He says, the moral law is the copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid, what duties to pursue. So the law here, the moral law, the Ten Commandments are a map. They're a blueprint for us to follow and to guide our lives. Number two, a second benefit is the law is a muzzle. It's a muzzle. You say, what do you mean by that, Bruce? Well, the law it can be used as a benefit in that it restrains sin in society. God's law provides us with a standard, get this, of right and wrong. Oh, that goes counterculture, doesn't it? And we all know we live in a culture that has rejected any kind of standard, let alone God's standard of right and wrong. This is no doubt explains why today there's so much opposition to posting the Ten Commandments in government buildings and public places. Listen, people don't like somebody telling them what to do. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want God, their creator, to give them a blueprint for how to live life. But 
Without a moral framework, society crumbles into confusion and chaos. And the result is a replay of violence, anarchy, and immorality described in the book of Judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's, of course, what we are seeing even today in our own culture. True, the law does not keep people from sinning entirely because it cannot change our sinful nature. But to a certain extent, the law does serve to restrain sin in a society when it is upheld. So, number one, the law is beneficial because it's a map. Number two, the law is beneficial because it's a muzzle. And then number three, notice this, the law is a mirror. It's a mirror. It shows us our sin and our need of a Savior. You say, how's that? Well, let me ask you, how many of you can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly? Raise your hand. Don't be humble. Anybody keep the Ten Commandments perfectly? That's what I thought. I don't either. None of us can. None of us can. I love what Michael Horton writes in his book, The Law of Perfect Freedom. He says this, and I quote, The law shows us how hopelessly we fall short of the righteousness God requires. Just when we think we are not quite as bad as the guy down the street living with so-and-so, the law puts us on trial and compares us, oh no, not to other men and women, but to God. This is meant to drive us to despair so that we see our shelter from God's wrath in, God, in Christ's righteousness alone. Augustine said, The usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity, in other words, of his sinfulness, and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace, which is in Jesus Christ. You see, when it's all said and done, listen to me, our greatest need in life is to see ourselves as we really are. Which is why we still need the Ten Commandments. No, not to save us. The law can't save us. But to show us how much we need a Savior who can save us. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who's a theologian, has written many books, explained it like this. And he does it so practically. Listen to what he says. The law of God is like a mirror. Now, the purpose of a mirror is to reveal to you that your face is dirty. (laughs) Duh. Right? Some of us, we go to the mirror to see how great we look, though, right? But the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. When you look in the mirror and find that your face is dirty, you do not then reach to take the mirror off the wall and attempt to rub it on your face as a cleansing agent. The purpose of the mirror is to drive you to the water that's in the sink. This is how God's law helps us, not by saving us, but by showing us our need for a Savior who cleanses our heart from our sin. And the more we look into the mirror of God's law, the more clearly we see that we are sinners who need to be saved. And once we see that, then run to Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is pardon for every lawbreaker. Hint, that's all of us. And there is forgiveness for every sinner. Hint, that's all of us who needs or who will trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
But all of this, I mean, let's admit it, this all still leads us to one big, obvious question when it comes to the Ten Commandments. And that is, well, are the Ten Commandments still in effect for today? For Christians in our culture? I mean, after all, that's what we all want to know. Bruce, if you're going to spend 11 weeks teaching all the Ten Commandments, are they still relevant? Are they still in effect for me today? And the answer is, get this, yes. God's moral law remains in effect for all peoples, in all places, at all times. God's standard has not changed any more than his character has changed. Perhaps this explains why God set the Ten Commandments in stone, writing them out with his own finger. I've always found that interesting. The Ten Commandments were written in stone because they would remain in effect for as long as time endured. Think about it. When would it be permissible to worship another god? When is it okay, in God's eyes, to misuse his name in vain? When is it okay to lie, to murder, or to steal? Never. Because these things are contrary to God's very nature. You say, but, well, well, but what about people who deny that God's law is still in effect, claiming, I'm under grace. I'm not under law anymore today. And I would say to those people, you don't understand the relationship between law and grace. You see, we don't celebrate, listen to me, a lawless grace any more than looking to the Old Testament. We see a graceless law. In the restraining power of the law, folks, get this, there is tons of grace. And if we don't understand that, we slander both the Old Testament and the God who spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai. True, as Christians, we are not under the condemnation of the law. But we are under its moral guidelines as a rule of life and an objective standard of holiness. And you say, yeah, but, but I thought Jesus, I mean, Jesus, he came to do something with the law. I heard that somewhere. You're right, Jesus did come to do something about the law. Notice it. Notice what Jesus says he came to do in Matthew 5, verse 17. The great sermon on the mountain. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. And then in that great sermon on the mount, Jesus goes on. And he does not lessen the force of the law. In fact, he heightens it from taking it merely as an external thing that we do outwardly as behavior, and he now makes it inward. He makes it a heart issue. And so now he says murder is rooted in what? Anger. Adultery is now rooted in lust. So Jesus doesn't lessen the Ten Commandments. In fact, he raises the bar on it. Even the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, let me just say, 
Jesus and Paul, Jesus commands us to keep the law not as a way of getting right with God. Let me say that clearly. Jesus commands us to keep the law not as a way of getting right with God, but as a way of pleasing the God who has already made us right with him. One other thing that's interesting with all this, do you realize that in one way or another, all ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament? Either by Jesus or the apostles. So when you read the New Testament, what Jesus and Paul never do is to declare an end to God's moral law as the standard for our lives. That's why the Ten Commandments are not obsolete, but still relevant for our lives today. So how should we view the Ten Commandments? Well, the context is God's faithful, redeeming love for his people, and the purpose is for our benefit as God's people. Now, as we conclude, I want you to go back to Exodus 20 and verse 1. And notice again what it says. Six words. And God spoke all these words. And God spoke all these words. Does this grab your attention? I mean, does this grip your heart and shake your soul to realize that God is speaking to his people? I mean, think about it. The voice coming from the mountain here is none other than the great I am. So the question is, how should we respond to the voice of God? Well, I would suggest to you that one of the best ways is to prepare yourself to hear from God. Prepare yourself to hear from God. Go back now to Exodus 19 and look what God tells Moses again on the mountain. Exodus 19, verse 9. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them or sanctify, or prepare them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. Verse 11, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then you drop down to verse 15, it says, And Moses said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Now, I would say the Lord makes a pretty big deal about preparing to receive these commandments, doesn't he? What does God tell the people to do? He says, wash your clothes. And then he tells them a couple other things, but the primary thing here is wash your clothes. Take a little time, in other words, to get ready to hear the voice of God. Prepare to hear the voice of God because this is important stuff. When God speaks, you want to be ready to hear him. So the question, how do we prepare ourselves to hear from God? Simple. Clean the clutter from your heart. Preparing to hear God's voice throughout this series all comes down to cleansing the clutter in our hearts. How many of you have a garage or a shed? How many have garages? How many of you 
park your car in the driveway instead of the garage. Don't be bashful, raise your hand, okay. There's a reason for that people, most people, park their cars in the driveway, not the garage. Because their garage is full of junk, clutter. And if you want to park your car, which was what a garage was made for, intended for, in the garage, you have to, first of all, clear out the clutter in your garage so that you can get what's most important into the garage. Folks, it's no different than when it comes to hearing from God. God has something for us. God wants his best for our lives. He knows what's best for us. And if we want to hear it, if we want to receive it, we've got to do a little cleansing in our hearts. And one of the biggest pieces of clutter in our hearts that hinders most people from hearing the voice of God at the top of the list is unconfessed sin. I know, I didn't want to hear that either. So we conclude, and it's real simple. All of us need to do a little examination. We need to do a little spring cleaning in our hearts. I love what John, the Apostle John says in 1 John 1. Not just verse 9, but I love what he says in verse 8. You remember what he says in verse 8? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But yes, I also love verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the question that we end is, will you prepare yourself to hear from God in the coming weeks? Will you clean out the clutter of unconfessed sin? Let's bow our heads. And I know this message was a little longer than usual, but I I want us to take a few minutes here to clean out our hearts. And so the praise team's going to come, and they're going to sing. They're just going to sing one chorus to give us a few minutes right where we're at to ask God to search out our hearts and to show us the unconfessed sin that we need to ask for his forgiveness for. Will you open up yourself to God right now to prepare yourself to hear from him as they sing?